Kia ora, welcome to Dex, our OBS and Guidelines. Today we're talking about breach birth with the newly revised RANSCOG guideline, COBS 11. So we're kind of trying a slightly different format this time. I'm going to go through a summary of the changes and then we'll go through the guideline in a bit more detail. So what's new with this guideline? Uh, the guidelines always included a recommendation about doing an ultrasound if there's suspected uh, breach in the late third trimester. Um, and it just goes on now to add that that ultrasound should include fetal biometry and assessment of amniotic fluid volume. Another point has been slightly expanded, which is a recommendation that basically when talking to uh, women about their preference for either a vaginal breech birth or cesarean, the principles of shared decision-making should be used during the counselling, which I think is common sense, but has been added. They've added a few words to one of the recommendations uh, that suggested that a suitably qualified obstetrician should be present, and now it also includes an experienced midwife is also needed. Uh, and then there are some new recommendations, entirely new recommendations, because this is a fairly expanded guideline. Uh, there's now a recommendation to have departmental protocols for planned breach. Uh, so this only applies to units that do uh, provide planned breach. Um, and then it has some other recommendations for unplanned breach, which effectively any department needs to be ready for. So it suggests that there needs to be training for unplanned uh, breach uh, given to basically all uh, staff members. And then there are some recommendations uh, owing to mode of delivery for preterm breach. And that states that from 25 weeks onwards, preterm breach is recommended to be borne by caesarean, whereas prior to 25 weeks, there's no clear benefit of caesarean. And the last new recommendation uh, is that twins with a leading breach should be borne by caesarean, which I don't think is really new, but it's just it's new to this guideline as an official recommendation. So that's a summary, and now we'll go into a bit more detail. I'll hand over to Caitlin to go through the fundamentals of breach. So as we know, between 3 and 4% of babies present at breach beyond 37 weeks gestation. Uh, and most of the time, we have the benefit of this being picked up prior to labour. Um, when we know about a breach uh, presentation prior to labour, we have the options of trying to turn the baby with an ECV, planning a vaginal breach delivery, or a planned caesarean section. The issue of deciding between these options has been controversial, and most of this has been related to the term breach trial, which was published in 2000. Um, as we know, this trial compared a policy of planned vaginal breach with planned caesarean section for selected breach presentations, and it showed that perinatal mortality and serious neonatal morbidity were significantly reduced with a planned caesarean as compared with a planned vaginal birth. Uh, there was no statistical difference between serious maternal morbidity between those groups, but it did not go on to look at future maternal morbidity with things like future caesarean sections and placenta accreta, etc. There have been other trials since um, that have had consistent um, or the same associations basically between the increased use of planned caesarean section and a reduction in uh, perinatal morbidity and mortality. 
Um, however, as we all know, there's been significant uh, criticisms with the methodology of the term breach trial, and we cannot generalise it to appropriately staffed and resourced uh, hospitals in Australia and New Zealand. Um, for example, the recruitment for women was in labour, so there was no evidence of looking for hyperextension of the fetal head. CTG was not mandatory. SGA and LGA babies were included. The experience was extremely variable. Um, and they included units who only had caesarean and paid recess available within an hour. So, there, I mean, there was just not a lot of consistency between uh, birthing centre management. Um, and they also included twins and babies who were anencephalic and I believe there were a couple well at least one baby was found to have um, died prior to the onset of labour and was still included uh, in the trial so um, there when you're looking through the methodology and generalizability, it's not there however because of the term breach trial uh, there has been a significant change in how breach presentation at term is managed uh, across Australia and New Zealand and um, the vast majority are now delivered by caesarean section. I think there has been a, a meta-analysis in 2016 that has also included observational non-randomised data uh, which showed the difference in perinatal mortality as being 1 in 333 for caesarean versus 1 in 2000 oh sorry 1 in 333 for vaginal birth and 1 in 2000 for caesarean section. Um, and interestingly, the authors of that meta-analysis concluded that the absolute risks were very small and so therefore women um, should have the option, but the accompanying editorial did not concur and stated that informed parents may continue to choose vaginal delivery, but it is no longer justifiable for obstetricians to claim that in their hands there is no increased fetal risk from vaginal birth. So things remain controversial. Um, I think... This guideline uh, manages the controversy really well, um, going through and talking about all um, uh, the different plans that units should have in place, because even if 100% of women chose to have a um, planned caesarean section for their vaginal breach, some of these women are going to show up in labour before their caesarean section, and there will always be unplanned presentation of vaginal breaches. So we do need to have... Um, a good guideline and uh, good management and protocols in place. Um, notably, this guideline also uh, then goes on in the introduction to say where vaginal breach is to be considered, um, that we have a minimum set of requirements for requirements for management and it should be conducted only by experienced fellows and then trainees under direct supervision. Yeah, so the term breach trial didn't, doesn't really reflect the modern landscape, at least in New Zealand and Australia, in terms of the resources that we have available to us, um, which basically should make it safer uh, to have a, vag a planned vaginal breach. And I think that we generally only be doing that in the hands of uh, a team that did feel experienced enough to do it, which, as you mentioned, is a rare thing now because this trial effectively stopped people continuing to have planned breach births and certainly being trained to do them. Um, but it's basically there's no, I guess there's a lack of evidence to really stop anybody who's actually experienced at doing it. And so, yeah, I think it navigates that well. 
So if we start on with the actual recommendations, uh, the first point is actually just called a good practice note. It's fairly common sense and is unchanged from the previous guideline. Uh, it's just saying that all caregivers should be experienced enough uh, in abdominal palpation to have a hope at identifying a breach presentation. And if there's any doubt, referring on having availability of ultrasound or being able to refer to somebody uh, to be able to confirm that presentation uh, is important. And that leads on to recommendation one, that in the late third trimester, if there is suspected breach, then an ultrasound is mandatory. Uh, at the time, uh, that if the breach presentation is confirmed, then a detailed obstetric ultrasound should be performed. So it's not just a quick abdominal ultrasound to uh, check that the baby is breech, but in addition, it should be uh, detailed to the point of looking for, uh, well, both confirming the presentation, but also uh, looking at what the legs are doing. So is it a footling breach? Um, and also looking for any evidence of fetal anomaly. We know that anomalous uh, fetuses are more likely to present breach, and so it uh, indicates that that's a possibility. Uh, you should also be looking for hyperextension of the fetal neck, which I'll discuss in a little more detail later on. Uh, uh, check that there's no placenta previa um, and always be suspicious, especially um, with breach and a, a posterior uh, placenta if it hasn't been well visualized. Uh, and then new to the guideline um, is the addition of a, basically a growth scan. So fetal biometry, estimated fetal weight and assessment of lycra volume uh, should be routinely performed. So recommendation two, um, women with a breach presentation at or near term should be informed about ECV which is external cephalic version, and offered it if it is found to be clinically appropriate. And this is an evidence-based recommendation, grade A, which I think is the best, the one with the most evidence in this guideline. Uh, recommendation three states that ECV should only be performed by suitably trained health professionals where there is facility for emergency caesarean section. Each institution should have its own documented protocol for offering and performing ECVs, including both absolute and relative contraindications. And this is a consensus-based recommendation, but it's, you know, it's a fairly sensible um, statement there. So um, ECV uh, is important in managing breach. It can, uh, it's normally about a 50-50, 40 to 60% success rate, depending on who's doing it and who's receiving it. Um, but it can reduce the risk of breach presentation in labour. Uh, we know that about 3% of babies will revert um, back to breach after a successful ECV. And even if the ECV is successful, there is still a slightly increased rate in the risk of caesarean section um, compared with women whose babies are spontaneously cephalic. Um, so ECV should only be performed by people who know how to do it, so suitably trained professionals or by a trainee working under direct supervision, uh, which, I mean, this is all fairly common sense stuff, and it should also only be performed in an institution if there's facility for emergency caesarean um, and the ability to monitor with CTG, ultrasound, and tocalize as needed. Uh, it should be offered from 37 weeks, although for nullips, potentially offering from 36 weeks could be sensible before the breach engages and becomes more difficult to elevate out of the pelvis and turn. Um, there's no upper limit for when ECV can be offered, but contraindications can become more common at a later gestation. Uh, they, the guideline does briefly mention that although there's not much data for intrapartum ECV, again, if no contraindications are present, it can be considered um, if the woman is able to give informed consent. 
Um, there's also not a lot of evidence to guide the number of attempts at ECV, but they advise no more than four attempts for a maximum of 10 minutes overall. Um, and in my sort of reasonably limited experience, it doesn't seem that there's much point in doing more than that. It's either going to turn or it isn't. You have a go, one or two goes as the trainee, the boss has one or two goes, and if it turns, it turns, if it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, what do you think, Sam? Uh, my observation is that in inexperienced hands, it takes a couple of seconds to know if the baby's not going to yeah. turn. Um, so unless unless you'd abandoned it because of a weird position or uh, pain or something like that, then <laughs> they usually just shake their head and it's yeah, over. Yeah, and if it's going to work, you can almost tickle the baby round. Like, there's not a lot of effort is needed, hey? Um, they state there as well that women who have an attempt at ECV, whether successful or not, should be, and who are rhesus negative, they should be offered anti-D within 72 hours, uh, which is 625 IU, I think, at the, um, in the third trimester. Um, and... Interestingly as well, um, it, it states, the guideline states that the need for emergency caesarean following ECV is less than for women in normal labour. So fasting, administration of anaesthetic pre-meds, insertion of an IV line um, are not recommended as routine, um, but each woman should be assessed and depends on the unit that you're in and the woman's particular situation as well. Um, and obviously sometimes IV lines are needed for tocolysis as well. Uh, there is a small risk of a CTG abnormality following um, ECV. Usually this reverts back to a normal CTG within a short period of time. However, urgent delivery is advised if there's persistence of the CTG abnormality, any vaginal bleeding or unexplained abdominal pain. Um, there's not been any study that's had sufficient power to be able to estimate the frequency of uterine rupture, perinatal death, or long-term morbidity associated with ECV, but they can occur. Uh, in terms of contraindications to an ECV, these are fairly well known, um, but just to quickly state them, if caesarean section is going to be necessary for another reason, such as placenta previa, if they've had a recent APH in the last seven days, if the CTG is already abnormal, if there is ruptured membranes, if there is a multiple pregnancy, um, and obviously the caveat to this is uh, delivery of the second twin where an ACV or an IPV may be necessary, um, and also where there is already rhesus isoimmunization. There are some relative uh, contraindications as well, which will be unit specific. So SGA with abnormal Dopplers, preeclampsia, oligohydramnios, major fetal anomalies, uh, or uterine anomalies, and the reason for this is the ECB is likely less likely to be successful. Um, the role of ECV following one previous caesarean section is controversial, um, but the best data that we have has shown that ECV after one caesar seems to have no increased risk compared with an unscarred uterus, so it can be offered depending on the unit. Yeah, so when discussing ECV, you also have to be prepared to um, answer questions about non-ECV methods. And so the guideline has a brief statement about what evidence is available. And in short, there is no evidence uh, to support uh, anything else. So that would be postural management alone um, isn't known to uh, increase spontaneous version uh, compared with just expectant management. Uh, another method is moxibustion, which is the burning of moxa in the form of a cone or a stick made of mugwort leaves. 
on or near the body's meridians and acupuncture points. Uh, and there's one, two, three, four references not supporting this. Um, so ECV or expectant management are about your only evidence-based options. Or a caesarean. Um, so uh, we've talked about ECV. If women decline an ECV, they have the options of a caesarean or a planned vaginal breach. Um, as Sam stated earlier, about 90% of fetuses that are breached presentation at term are delivered by a caesarean section. And this is where we have most experience. Um, and that, again, has been significantly altered since the term breach trial. Um, as per the OBS guideline C OBS 23, timing of elective caesarean section, in the absence of any other um, risk factors, elective caesarean for breach alone should be performed at 39 weeks. Um, we know that th this is the time unit balances maternal risk of going into labour prior to 39 weeks, which is about 10%, versus um, the risk of foot to the fetus, which is normally um, transient tachypnea of the newborn or other respiratory complications. So um, that would be the usual recommendation. Um, and it also states that obstetricians should be aware that breach presentation is associated with an increased risk of fetal injury at caesarean section. Um, this risk is significantly reduced as compared with at vaginal birth, but it is still um, the non-usual way of delivering a baby. Um, so those injuries include cervical spine, spinal cord or vertebral artery injury. Um, they are more likely when the head is hyperextended, uh, which Sam will talk about. Um, it's also important to note that these injuries can occur antenatally and are not necessarily the consequence of the delivery itself. Um, but I don't know how you would ever be able to state that formally and you know if there's delivery uh, difficulty delivering the baby that will be blamed I would say um, and then maternal consequences of caesarean can be considerable as well particularly if the breach is very deeply engaged um, there may come a time even with a vaginal breach that the if the baby's half out then at that point there may come a time that that is the sort of the recommended um uh, way to carry on delivering the baby um, there haven't been any trials um, that assess caesarean section specifically at full dilatation with the breech deeply engaged uh, so we don't have any data to be able to make any recommendations um, in terms of intraoperative uh, technique, I'd say the main thing would be preoperatively talking to your assistant and making sure that they understand that delivery of a breach at caesarean is, is different from delivering a cephalic baby in that the main their main job is to ensure persistent flexion of the fetal head and following the baby, um, continuing to flex the head with their fundal pressure. Um, it's important to perform a VE in theatre immediately prior to doing the caesarean section. Um, uh, sort of the thing that I was taught small baby big hole, big baby big hole breech baby big hole so make sure that there is an adequate um, abdominal incision um, and be prepared um, that if you're unable to continue to maintain flexion or if there's difficulty in delivering the after coming head um, 
the next steps would be a modified MSV maneuver or the use of obstetric forceps and occasionally um, tocolysis and extending the incision usually in an inverted inverted T um, to give yourself adequate room. Uh, obviously that's not ideal in terms of future pregnancy implications however it may avoid fetal injury um, in the technically difficult situation in the short term. All right, so if you uh, basically elect to aim for a planned vaginal breech birth instead of a caesarean, uh, then the guideline now gives uh, some more information about how that should be uh, planned in terms of protocols, and then also gives some actual specific advice about the procedure itself. The informed consent process is obviously a very important part of that. Uh, so that's for a woman who elects to have a planned vaginal breech birth, they need to have um a good idea of the risks and uh, fair expectations uh, and should understand about what our backup plans are and monitoring requirements uh, and indications effectively to bail out and to do a caesarean. Um, this should be performed in centres that uh, have uh, unambiguous uh, protocols uh, and case selection. This is part of the new recommendation. Um, uh, and so it shouldn't all just kind of be left to uh, chance uh, and I guess differing uh, practice styles. Um, so it basically says that there should be an adequate experience and infrastructure uh, for planned cesarean and this should be done in a kind of team environment. Uh, units should develop a checklist, uh, provide evidence-based counselling uh, and need to talk through the potential risks and benefits of vaginal breech birth uh, and this should be in the context of the clinical team infrastructure infrastructure and environment available. So it needs to be tailored to the unit. If a woman also wishes to attempt a vaginal breech birth, but a unit has limited access to uh, experienced birth attendants uh, and infrastructure, then an offer should be made for referral to a unit where those expertise exist, which would be quite an impactful, uh, also would be quite a significant thing if that meant moving uh, for some period of the pregnancy. Um, the, it states that the essential components of planned vaginal breach are appropriate case selection, management according to a strict protocol, and available availability of school birth attendance. Some of the infrastructure that's required is continuous electronic fetal monitoring, immediate availability of anaesthetists, uh, facilities for a caesarean, and also for pediatric resus and the availability of an experienced midwife and obstetrician for all of the labour, and that should also include arrangements for shift changes and fatigue. So it's not simply good enough to have one person on site and on call for every case. Uh, there are contraindications to vaginal breach delivery. So the ones included here are cord presentation, uh, growth restriction or macrosomia defined as a fetal weight estimated to be more than 3.8 kg. Any presentation other than uh, extended or flexed leg breach, i.e. not footling and not a compound presentation. Uh, hyperextension of the fetal neck on ultrasound is a contraindication. Uh, evidence of an abnormal CTG uh, and also anomaly incompatible with vaginal delivery. So something that's kind of fairly obvious you would hope. Um, it does mention that uh, pelvimetry uh, is unclear. Doing MRIs and x-rays isn't known to improve your prediction of uh, whether or not a cesarean will end up being needed. 
And also significantly, induction isn't recommended. So basically for a planned vaginal breach, you really need to be going into labor spontaneously at term, effectively with nothing really going wrong. So you obviously want a fairly low-risk pregnancy that's going as planned uh, and going going well. And if you start to have labor concerns, then it's usually best to uh, resort to a cesarean. Uh, the first stage of labor should be managed with the same principles as for cephalic presentation, so continuous monitoring uh, and considering a cesarean rather than augmentation if needed. Uh, and then when it comes to the second stage, uh, hands off the breach is always the thing to keep in mind. So allowing descent of the breach to the perineum uh, prior to active pushing uh, and you usually give about two hours for this to occur. Uh, so that's basically from uh, identifying women being fully, uh, waiting until the breach is really on the perineum. At that stage, uh, pushing can be uh, commenced. Uh, if the breach hasn't descended to the perineum, then after two hours, a cesarean should be recommended. Uh, there is limited evidence regarding maternal position at delivery. I think when there's limited evidence, it's best to just go with uh, what the woman feels most comfortable with and what uh, the birth attendants are also comfortable with. Once the breach is at the perineum and visible active pushing, active pushing can be commenced. Uh, remember, hands off the breach. Traction should be avoided. Avoid uh, tactile stimulation uh, because that could cause uh, reflex extension of the arms and neck. Don't hold the baby by the liver. <laughs> Another key point. So if you if you um, if you are having to perform maneuvers, make sure you gra- um, grasp the baby over any over bony prominences rather than soft tissue, um, and uh, again avoid hyperextension of the fetal neck. Um, the guideline does mention that selective rather than routine episiotomy should be con- recommended or considered. But you, um, if you're waiting to cut an episiotomy until the body has delivered, you will need assistance. Um, and in that situation, um, you do usually sort of wrap the baby in a towel to allow your assistant to elevate the baby um, either for episiotomy or if you're needing to apply um, forceps for the aftercoming head, those kind of things. I have to say that all the breech deliveries I've been involved in, I've had to do pretty much nothing. Um, sometimes the arms, sometimes MSV for the head, but if a breech is going to come, it's going to come, um, has been my experience. Yeah, probably the most helpful guidance is knowing what's kind of acceptable to to wait on um, and so i think that the two hours are, um, from fully to starting to push uh, and then from the basically the point of the buttocks being born uh, the head should really be born within five minutes um, and uh, or from three minutes from when the umbilicus um, is is born and the other thing would be making sure that the fetus um, is back up so if the if the baby starts to rotate, just ensure that the baby's back is um, superior, I suppose. Is it? <laughs> S- Sacramentaria. Sacramentaria, yeah. yeah. So that's gonna be that's potentially gonna be Oh, so I guess when you so it's not really in the guideline about the different manoeuvres available, but some of the times that you might get involved would be to aid with the delivery of the legs, and that's usually just with putting a little bit of pressure um, on the knees uh, to re- uh, deliver a leg um, each. And at the point that the, both the legs are delivered, you can go back to hands-off. Um, as Caitlin mentioned, moving that pelvis back into uh, sacrum anterior position uh, as required, then aiming to just, again, have hands-off, trying to get the baby born in the next few minutes, um, and then at the point that the shoulder blades are visible, 
uh, that's when you'd often do your love sets maneuvers to help with the uh, delivery of the arms. So that's that 90 degree uh, rotation uh, and sweeping of the arms over the fetal head. Uh, then again, I think at that stage you can probably do a little bit of hands off to try to let the, and often like you mentioned, often the head will just deliver at that stage by itself, but otherwise grabbing the legs, doing muscle smelly beat, um, plus or minus uh, forceps if needed to get that head born. All right, so the actual recommendations themselves. Recommendation four uh, is that where there's maternal preference for vaginal birth, the risks and benefits should be discussed. The principles of shared decision-making should be uh, used uh, and a uh, referral to an appropriate unit um, should be made available if needed. Uh, Recommendation five, all maternity units that offer vaginal breach need to have clear, strict, and unambiguous protocols available. Uh, and then they also need to have adequate resources. So that is to do continuous electronic fetal monitoring, immediate availability of cesarean facilities, and availability of experienced obstetrician midwives and uh, pediatrics, really. Now, we've mentioned hyperextension of the fetal neck uh, multiple times, and so I did a little bit of reading into what the significance of this, because interestingly, wherever it's mentioned in a guideline, there's never any further kind of follow-up of why that's important. So... In my mind, I always had it that it was an indication that they could be caught around the neck or at least some like significant kind of, I guess, multiple nuchal cords, which uh, is going to be quite a risky position to be in if you've got most of the baby's uh, body born, but then the head stops coming. You can't really just pull on that. Uh, but there are actually other things. So there, are, I found an article that just basically goes into the background and it said that there are various etiologies for hyperextension of the fetal neck. And these not only include nuchal cords, but also fetal anomalies and structural abnormalities, uh, sometimes conjoined twins and fetal neck masses. Um, Polyhydramnius uh, in the presence of hyperextension of the fetal neck is often secondary and probably indicates an impaired swallowing related to that structural uh, problem. Um, And otherwise, it could also be due to things like fibroids or uterine malformations, Um, which may also, again, interfere with delivery and also make a vaginal birth more risky. It did, however, state that in 75% of cases with hyperextension of the fetal neck, no cause was identified. So presumably in these cases, it may not have interfered with the vaginal breach, but that still leaves a quarter of the time you may have had a significant risk, and that's, I think, probably just too large a risk to take. So hence why it's a contraindication uh, to vaginal breach birth. Um, and it's also something to keep in mind that if um, somebody comes into labor uh, with a breach kind of on view, that that would be one of the few things that you should try to identify like actively, um, as that would be if you're kind of on the fence about 50-50, do we aim for a vaginal breach or go and do a fully cesarean, then hyperextension of the fetal neck really should be pushing you towards going and doing that cesarean. As Sam mentioned, despite our um, best efforts in identifying breach presentation prior to labour, there will always be uh, women who turn up in um, active labour, maybe even fully, maybe even with a breach on view. So units do need to have a way um, or sort of a protocol in place to manage this situation. So recommendation seven states, when breach presentation is first recognised in labour, the obstetrician should discuss the options of emergency caesarean section or attempting a vaginal breach with the woman, explaining the respective risks and benefits of each option according to her individual circumstance. 
uh, and where practicable, point-of-care ultrasound should be performed when breech presentation is first diagnosed in labour. Uh, and that is to identify your hyperextension of the fetal neck, but also to look at things like type of breech, footling, for example, or if there's any cord presentation. Recommendation 8 is that all maternity units should undertake regular training for all medical and midwifery staff using simulation to ensure that staff maintain adequate skills to be able to provide appropriate care when a woman is admitted in advanced labour with breech presentation. So add this to the preeclampsia, to the PPH, to the APH management uh, simulations that should be undertaken by most, well, by all, sorry, um, maternity units. Um, as Sam stated, in some cases, the diagnosis of breech presentation will be made quite close to delivery, um, especially when a raver is progressing rapidly. Um, so this means there's only a small window for decision making regarding the mode of delivery. Um, and we know that babies that are that have fetal anomalies or um, undiagnosed chromosomal abnormalities are more likely to present breech as well or um, in women with uterine anomalies. So getting as much information as possible in a point-of-care ultrasound uh, should be really mandatory and as much as it's possible. Um, and then obviously informed consent is key and it is always the woman's choice. Now 4.6 of the guideline, uh, recommendations 9 and 10 are new for this guideline. I'm talking about preterm breach delivery. So recommendation nine, uh, when planned preterm delivery is required for maternal or fetal compromise with a viable fetus after 25 weeks gestation in breach presentation, elective caesarean section is recommended. Uh, this needs to be performed by a clinician with appropriate experience. Head entrapment should be anticipated and preparations made to manage it. Uh, and then recommendation 10, there is no clear neonatal benefit of birth by caesarean section for breech presentation between 22 and 24 plus 6 weeks. The neonatal outcome at these gestations is likely to be determined by factors other than mode of birth. So as a consequence, caesarean section at these gestations is not routinely recommended. Uh, there may be some situations that it is appropriate for that woman and that baby, well steroided, mag solved, etc, etc. Um, but this is very clear that between 22 and 24 plus 6, it's an individual um, decision to be made. Under 25 weeks, the baby is so small that the risk of head entrapment is mm. uh, on the lower side, um, or at least it's not so significant compared to all the other risks that are already mm. going on. Mm. And we know that breech presentation is more common preterm, one of the reasons that we don't do ECVs uh, for more preterm babies. Um, and that preterm deliveries are usually unplanned um, and occur as a result of spontaneous preterm labour. So um, a Cochrane review has assessed the effects of planned immediate caesar versus planned vaginal breach for women who present in labour with a singleton pregnancy and has shown no significant differences between the two groups with respect to immediate um, outcomes or follow-up. This still should be um, individualised based on stage of labour, type of breach, etc. You know, if a woman's had three previous caesarean sections, you're probably want to go and do a caesarean section. So things are always, um, you know, unique to that situation and should be uh, shared decision-making. Um, but if a woman presents fully with a breach on view and preterm, there's no mandate to do a caesarean section. Uh, the difference, I suppose, with a planned preterm 
breech delivery is that there's usually a reason that we are planning a preterm delivery. The baby is more likely to be compromised. Um, and so in a planned situation, cesarean section should be the mode of choice. The final recommendation is just in regard to twins, where the leading twin is breech cesarean is recommended. Uh, that would be owing to the fact that ECV would be close to impossible, uh, high risk, and our other options, as we've already discussed, aren't effective. And no one likes uh, an entrapped head in a headlock by another twin. <laughs> What's that called? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Locked twins. Locking twins. <laughs> Locked twins. <laughs> um, so I felt this guideline is a huge improvement from its predecessor. I like how things have been laid out in, in terms of the recommendations. They've included preterm, they've included twins. They're... It's really clear, particularly in preterm, um, and it's really nice to have it stated, the recommendations and the gestations at which the recommendations occur. Yeah, I agree. A total improvement. It puts together all of the information I feel like you, I'd really known, uh, as at least what I felt was needed for the exam, um, because it goes into a bit of detail about how to actually perform a breach, um, how to do the workup, um, and it has clarified some uh kind of clinical realities about making the decision about uh, preterm uh, breach, which I think is really nice to have written down in black and white. Um, it also has some good kind of political components of that. It's not kind of forcing anybody kind of either way. It certainly uh, involves the woman in the decision-making process uh, and it uh, kind of implores um, departments to have plans uh, both for uh, their planned vaginal birth uh, approach as well as for emergency situations which are bound to happen from time to time so yeah overall i think everything nice yeah. guideline um and so uh, just to summarize the main points of difference are that the ultrasound should include biometry and lyco assessment um it should be shared decision making which shouldn't need to be stated but i'm glad it is again an experienced midwife should be present again shouldn't need to be stated but i'm glad it is um, and then it just goes through protocols for planned breach, training for unplanned breach, and adds in preterm uh, and twins to the guideline. So a really good guideline, well worth a read, um, and uh, incorporating into departmental protocols as stated. Yeah, so if you're looking for a project at your uh, uh, local place, then this I'm sure that every department can probably make a few changes or improvements uh, based on this guideline. All right, well, we look forward to discussing the next one. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>